Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're going to be taking a deep dive into Morningstar's outlook for the third quarter of 2023. We're going to be looking at individual sectors, ones that are favoured and ones that aren't. And we're going to be looking at a number of their top picks in terms of individual stocks. And to do that, we're very kindly joined once more by Michael Field, who is the equity market strategist for Europe at Morningstar. Michael, welcoming you back to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Always great to be back here. So we spoke probably about three months ago now, Michael, and we started off the conversation then with looking at the at the macro picture. And we're going to do that again before we, we move on to start to look at individual sectors and companies. And looking at what's happening out there, there's not a great deal of change, Michael. It looks as though inflation is still front and centre. Of course, recording this on, on Tuesday, we have US CPI coming up later this week, which is a, a massive data point for, for markets. But from where you're sitting, Michael, how is the inflation story evolved since we we last spoke? You know, is it still something that's a major concern or, or are we now at a time where people are looking towards in inflation rates falling and what that means for, for interest rates going forward, even to the extent that it, it could become a, a tailwind for, for equity markets at some point in the, in the, in the rest of 2023. Yeah. So I think last quarter when we spoke about inflation, that was the key thing we were all looking at. That was, that was what the focus was on for everyone. Um, I don't think you're you're right in saying that not a lot has changed there. If you look at the picture, UK inflation is still very high, right? 8.7% at the last number. Eurozone inflation is falling a bit quicker than that, but still high, right? Still elevated levels, 5.5% of what you have in the last quarter or so. Um, You know, that's still way above the 2% target level for the Bank of England um, or indeed the ECB. So, okay, inflation's falling but it's still elevated and it's still going to be a bit of a problem. And that the main thing that feeds into then as well is two things. One is like you said about consumers and whatnot, you know, UK mortgage rates have hit their highest level now in what 15 plus years, 6.6% they're saying now for the average um, two year fixed mortgage or what have you. So again, this is going to hit, you know, consumers are already cash strapped. If we look at some of the trends from the last quarter, you know, supermarkets are reporting that customers are, are buying less products or they're buying cheaper products. So clearly consumers are struggling and now mortgage rates are hitting the highest levels in 15 years. So that kind of spells bad news for the economy. And we can we can talk about that in GDP and whatnot in a short while as well. Um, but that's generally bad news. And then on top of that, if you look at the effects on businesses and whatnot, they're still struggling to pass through those high inflation rates as well. You know, there's a bit of a dichotomy if we look at earnings season for the last quarter. Some companies have been very good at passing through inflation, some less so. And you're seeing a kind of a divergence there as a result. And that's kind of weakening the uh, the kind of corporate earnings picture as well. So inflation, I think we were probably more worried about it last quarter because it it really was really stubborn. Was now we're seeing some signs of movement, not so much in the UK, but it feels like it's trending downwards anyway. So it, 
that's good news, but it's it's not coming fast enough. I think is probably the the main takeaway. So, I mean, I, the way that I see it, Michael, that, that there will be a, a shift at some point from everybody focusing on inflation and what central banks are going to do towards, as you mentioned, GDP growth and, and what the underlying growth picture is for, for equities and, of course, uh, economies around the world. Do, do you see that shift and a major shift coming in the next quarter? Or do you think that's something that's coming in the quarters to come or quarters to come afterwards? You mean with central banks changing, changing the direction of uh, travel on the interest rates and things like this? Exactly. And, and when, does it, when do we move to a situation that people aren't as fixated on, on what the next, uh, what's going to happen at the next meeting yeah. at the Fed, for example, yeah. to actually start looking at underlying growth levels and then what that means for, for company earnings. Mm. So I think, you know, we're at a crucial point now, right? An inflection point where rates have been increasing for quite a while. And now people are more focused on when that turning point is coming and we can start being optimistic about the market again. So that's why there's a focus. And I think even if we hit that turning point, okay, there'll be something less of a focus, but it's still, it's more about the direction of travel rather than the magnitude now. And that's what, you know, that's what we're all watching for to see if that direction of travel changes. But I think the problem is, look, we spoke about the inflation rate being very high. And as long as that's very high, and as long as that's clearly above that 2% mandate for the central banks, they're going to have to keep raising rates. So that that's kind of therein lies the problem, if you will. And if you look at economists' forecasts at the moment, they're still forecasting, what, between three and five more rate increases for the ECB, um, something between one and three for the Bank of England, even though we're at 5% plus in the, you know, the Bank of England base rate. So we're not out of the woods yet in terms of that turning point. And we, you know, we conduct a number of webinars and we throw out polls and whatnot. And I, I remember asking for the last couple of quarters whether people see a, you know, interest rate decrease coming in 2023. And one or two quarters ago, the kind of response rate to that question was very high. You had maybe 60, 70 percent of people expecting that rate rate decline coming by the end of the year. And I think what people are slowly realizing now is that's not going to be the case, that it's very unlikely that central banks are actually going to have reduced inflation enough such that they're comfortable enough to to decrease rates again. Like what they don't want to do is flip flop around. They want to make sure that it, things are happening and things are getting to that point that they need them to be at before they turn, you know, turn the ship around. Um, so I think investors are going to be disappointed if, if there's any left that think there's going to be interest rate decreases by the end of the year. And therein lies the danger, right? That, you know, you mentioned before that market valuations are still very high. And part of that reason that they're high is that investors are really looking through the current kind of malaise and they're saying, okay, in three months, we're going to see that interest rate decrease and therein things will improve. And that's what I'm banking on. I'm not going to get out now. I'm going to wait for this. But the longer that takes, the more kind of um, disenthused those investors might become and the more danger of market sell-offs. Indeed, indeed. When we're certainly looking at a market at the moment, which is still relatively elevated here in the UK, of course, we're seeing a push higher in in, in, in US and, and European indices are, are doing very well, all with a backdrop of what's particularly gloomy uh, outlook still for, for inflation. And as you mentioned there, interest rates uh, set to, to go higher still. So we're going to move on now, Michael, and we're going to start drilling down in, into sectors. After this, we will look at individual picks within these sectors. But to start with, would you be able to please give us an overview 
in your Q3 outlook of the sectors that that you find attractive and, and those that you find unattractive going forward? Certainly. So the first thing I would say that is, you know, despite some of the kind of large market moves that we've seen over the last quarter or so, or even over the last year, like you've still got, okay, I probably wouldn't have guessed these numbers, but looking at them now, if I look over the last year, consumer cyclical stocks are up, you know, almost 25%. um, And then things like industrial technologies are up double digit, you know, 12%. Financials up 14% in the last year. So there's been some pretty big moves within specific sectors. Um, But despite that, you know, every single sector we cover, if we look at our bottom up aggregate fair value estimate, everything is trading at below where we think it's worth. Now, some things are very close, right? So the difference being that I think consumers are still very much um, erring on the side of caution or investors are erring on the side of caution. And if you look at things like consumer defensives, for instance, utilities, those sectors that people believe will hold up pretty well in the event of a recession, you know, we've got less than 10% upside in both of those sectors. So um, I think people are being defensive to some degree. And then if I look at the, you know, the most upside across sectors, consumer cyclicals, probably the obvious one, you know, 25, 30% upside there, um, communications, telecoms, and then energy and financial services are in a kind of a similar boat as well with plenty of upside. And that the common link between those sectors is that those are the sectors that can, that investors are kind of fearing the worst outcome if indeed things turn bad, you know, particularly consumer cyclicals is an obvious one. You've got stocks and sec, you know, within that sector already that are kind of struggling in the current environment, you know, high inflation, difficult to pass through price increases, consumers are getting more cash strapped, things like this. So, you know, investors are generally wary of those sectors. So that's why they're trading on the kind of greatest discounts to where we where we see them worth. So let's start, Michael, with the consumer cyclical sector and, and the top picks that you have there, uh, which I note are, are Persimmon and, and Just Eat. So we, we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that this morning we, we've seen the highest mortgage rates here in the UK, I think for about 15 years, 6.6%. And we're looking at Persimmon here that makes, it way, makes its way into your top picks. Is there not a situation where things could get really messy for for the house builders and the UK housing market going forward over this this next quarter? Or, or is it a case that you're sort of looking at the, the sell-off that's already happened in, the, in this sector and thinking, yes, we're now getting towards a, a level where a lot of the, the fallout is probably priced in to the stock prices that we're seeing? I think you I think you pretty much nailed the answer there. I think okay, yes, the answer short answer is yes, things could get messier, certainly, right? Um, no doubt. Like we're hitting what, six point six percent, as I said, in UK mortgage rates, and there's probably further hikes likely before the end of the year, um, which could really push some um, you know, homeowners or potential mortgage getters over the edge right that could certainly and that could certainly hit the home builders worse and even since look we've published our kind of recent report on the home builders um you know the share price has declined so there's no there's no getting away from that but we're looking at the medium term picture here and the medium term picture is that they're really cheap at the moment if i look at persimmon for example uh, it's 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 worth about a third of what it was you know, two years ago. So that just shows you how much it's declined since then. Um, so I think I think you're you're right in saying, look, a lot of this is priced in at this point. 
and I was at actually we had a conference, the Morningstar Investment Conference UK last week, and and one of the speakers put up a very interesting slide on banks and home builders, two sectors that get absolutely nailed when we hit a kind of a downturn. But you know his point was that not all downturns are the global financial crisis. Most of the downturns that we encounter are generally a bit shallower. You know, it's a recession that lasts a year or two, and then we're you know we kind of ramp up again. And one of the interesting metrics that they showed was about they showed was about Bellway, the um, UK home builder, and they showed the earnings of the company and the share price in tandem over the course of that recession. And what was interesting was that the share price. The fall in the share price massively preceded the actual earnings decline. So investors bailed out pretty early of these names because they're so fearful that things will get so bad. And if you look then at what actually happens to earnings, like the the home builders during a general recession, their earnings actually held up. You know, they 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 reported positive earnings despite the fact that they were in a recession. And then coming out of that, you know, earnings ramped up pretty quickly within a year or two. And you can see share prices kind of doubling and tripling again. So I think we've been, you know, relatively conservative in our in terms of where we think Persimmon can go. We're saying it's worth kind of just over twice what it is now. But if you look at the medium term conditions for these companies, there's still huge demand for housing in the UK. Structurally, there's not enough houses being built. You've got an aging population. You've got immigration rising again. So there's definitely plenty to be positive about despite that short term outlook. But okay, of course, if you invest in home builders going into a potential recession, you know, you do have to be aware there's going to be some volatility likely. Indeed, certainly a sector I have my eyes on personally. So just just picking up on the other pick within the consumer cyclical sector, Michael, just Steve is, is an interesting one. I mean, is there a notion here that if we do see a bit of softness in the the wider economy, that you know people will be staying in and ordering food in as opposed to to, to going out? I mean, that that's a sort of typical school of thought with uh, some premium food outlets to some extent and, and, and delivery services, or is it and very much an evaluation situation that you're looking at with Just Eats? Probably more the latter is what I would say. I think. The problem with these stocks is that they've come through this kind of um, purple patch, right, during the pandemic when everyone was stuck inside ordering food. And then you had this unusual number of people ordering food and people ordering unusual numbers of food as well at the same time, right? People who wouldn't normally order takeaways three times a week started ordering them. So then they've kind of got these difficult comparisons back from 2020, 2021, when we look back at that. And now investors are very much of the mindset, look, that these numbers aren't replicable, that, you know, you can't hit these going forward, that no one's going to order that much takeaway ever again. And people have kind of become a little bit um, disenthused with the stock as a result. And on top of that, you've got some kind of industry specific things as well, right? If you look at the dynamics between kind of, um, you know, Uber Eats and other other competitors in that industry, it's been kind of a doggy dog situation, which is kind of thrown up kind of um, opportunities in the sector, but also challenges within the sector as well. It was very competitive at one point, and now it's kind of easing out to some degree as well. So I think there's some structural things going on, but our kind of message with these stocks is, look, Just Eat Takeaway is one that we've identified as having a strong balance sheet. The strategy going forward is pretty clear now. It doesn't look like they're going to waste any capital in terms of 
kind of acquisitions that won't work and things like this. And we feel that, you know, the performance in terms of revenues and consumer orders is going to kind of become more stable over the next while as well, that it's not going to completely fall back to 2019 levels as the kind of market fears for some degree. So that's where the opportunity comes in. So moving on now, Michael, let's look at the energy sector. So it'd be good to get a few comments on your on your views on the energy sector. Of course, as a sector, it did particularly well last year. Things have uh, they've eased off slightly uh, so far in in 2023. So it'd be good to get your your thoughts on the overall sector as well as one of your top picks, a FTSE 100 company in shell what what's standing out for you in shell at the moment so the energy sector is one that you know I, I keep highlighting probably every quarter for the last year not because i love the sector but because there's just so much interesting things happening in this sector and like you said it's it's massively outperformed the european index for well you know a year and a half now at the very least so it's, it, it's become one of those sectors that if fund managers weren't invested in or they were underinvested in, they would find it particularly difficult to beat their benchmark, which makes it even more interesting for the next six months or year as well. Is, is it the case that it's kind of had a good run and now you're going to see better performance elsewhere or is there more to come from this sector? So that's the kind of the key focus there. Um, you know, we've gotten through so many things over the last while, right? So the, the Ukraine war, obviously, the shortage of oil and gas. You've got constant news flow about OPEC meetings and potential cuts as well. So that's all happening. Um, and then on top of that, you've got the Repower EU plan, where the EU is trying to wean itself off that Russian gas over the next couple of years and ultimately going to wean itself off gas completely. So there's a lot of moving parts to the situation. But one of the kind of key areas of focus for us is around those oil majors and Shell, as you correctly pointed out. So, you know, being a, having global coverage, Morningstar, you know, of the oil and gas industry, we've got a pretty good oversight of how the oil majors in Europe compare to the oil majors in the US. And performance wise, there's not a whole lot of difference between the, the two the two regions. But valuation wise, there's a huge gap between the two different regions. If I look at, you know, price to earnings ratios, which we're all pretty much familiar with in the US, you've got, you know, Chevron and Exxon and they're trading at kind of 10, 11 times PE. And then in Europe, you know, Shell, Total, BP, you know, they're trading at almost half these valuations. They're trading at kind of between five and a half and seven times earnings. So there's this huge discrepancy. Um, and that feeds through to cash flow and things like this as well in terms of, you know, what you're getting bang for buck as a result of these cheap valuations. And the, the kind of reasoning behind that is something we've been looking into over the last while. And kind of one of the reasons we can come up with for it is the fact that there's much more of a focus in Europe on emissions, uh, green energy, sustainability ratings and things like this, far more so than in the US where investors, you know, they're aware of sustainability ratings, but at the same time, it's not the same key area of focus as it is in Europe. And what's happening then is, you know, US investors are following the money. They're investing in these stocks with good free cash flow yields, you know, earnings ratios that are out of this world, um, revenue growth, earnings growth, the usual. And in Europe, we're really kind of beating up the oil majors as a result of this, and we're not investing in them. And in the end, then, that's been reflected in the valuations, which we see as very cheap. 
and then you know feeding through to shell then you know they had their um annual day recently and one of the key things for management was to outline this kind of shareholder appeasing plan for want of a better word where they're they're basically saying look we're gonna we're gonna increase distributions to you we're gonna pay you more dividends we're going to increase share buybacks and we're going to try to be more shareholder shareholder friendly in an effort to kind of lure those investors back into the stocks but and this this is the kind of key point for us that if you look at the budgets of these oil majors in the US and in Europe toward renewable energy it's much higher in Europe now and they've outlined plans for the next 5 years than it is in the US so what you should have in 5 years time is a situation where the European oil majors are much closer to being these kind of green renewable companies than their US peers, which we meet, which we feel ultimately will then be reflected in the valuations for these companies. So we see a lot of upside for the oil majors like Shell and BP as a result of this kind of shift and as a result of this discrepancy between them and their US peers. So is it really a situation that when we're looking at Shell and, and European peers, that, that the key story for, for these companies is very much the energy tra- transition? Of course, the focus now on, on, on ESG and, and reducing emissions within portfolios, that if they stay very much focused on, on fossil fuels, that it, it's simply not feasible for them to see their valuations move up in line with US peers, but it's just the case that we have to see these companies really making strides in reducing their emissions, becoming cleaner companies and moving towards renewable energies before we see any meaningful movement in the valuations compared to the peers over over in the States. So it's a real tightrope and a real balancing act that management are trying to do, particularly at Shell, because you know that all came out at their annual annual day. Um, they're really trying to walk this tightrope that on the one hand they're saying yes we know that investors want us to become a renewable company we want to be a renewable company longer term yes and we know that that's what's going to move the valuation but at the same time they're looking at the short term and they're saying well look there's this kind of dearth of you know fossil fuels coming through over the next few years it's going to take a number of years for the world to wean itself off fossil fuels and we're going to be short and someone else is going to fill that gap if we don't and we have the opportunities now to increase drilling in places um, and build new sites etc and really take advantage of those opportunities that we have already um so that's what they're trying to do they're trying to kind of balance those two things and the way in which they're doing it is saying look what we'll do with all this extra cash that we're making is we're going to give it back to you, the shareholders. So please kind of give us credit for that in the short term and know that longer term, we're still committed to this moving towards a renewable company, being a renewable company and being you know pro-green energy and whatnot. So that's the kind of the balancing act that they're trying to strive for. How well they can manage that over the next couple of years is the real difficult part, I think. Yes, yeah, certainly a sector that I find fascinating. It's going to be fascinating to see how that all progresses in the in the coming years. So we're going to move on now, Michael, and look at the insurance sector, which I notice a sector that you're cautious on. I just know so far in 2023, it seems that it's profit warning after profit warning for UK insurers. So, I mean, what's behind this move? What's what's happening with the sector and, and why are you so cautious going forward uh, on the insurance sector? 
So it's a good segue from what you said is the, the most interesting sector there, energy, into uh, insurance, which is always a difficult one to uh, talk, talk people into. Um, but if you, you know, if, you, if you cry that something's going to go wrong there, people start, people start paying a little bit of attention at least. So I think, okay, back in March during the banking crisis, the key area of focus for us was, you know, is there going to be contagion? What about the rest of the banks in Europe? You know, when a big bank like Credit Suisse kind of almost goes under, people start paying attention and people start asking questions. And then, you know, earnings season for the banks showed that, look, it showed our thesis kind of right to some degree. It showed that, okay, most of the banks in Europe are very well capitalized, the large banks at least. They're not going to go under um, and things will kind of muddle through to some degree. And that's what happened. And you saw bank valuations rise as a result. But the big question on investors' lips after that banking crisis was, okay, What's next? What's the next most exposed sector to rising interest rates? And, you know, the answer to that is insurance to some degree, which is why we put out this kind of monster 60 page report. If anyone really wants to get delve in deep into insurance stocks, mm -hmm. the, we can make that available to them. But, you know, one of the key messages from this report is that rising interest rates are a bad deal for insurance companies, generally speaking. Uh, you know, they're facing headwinds from rising interest rates, right? So um, what happens is the assets on their balance sheet that they use to kind of um, counterweigh the claims they have to pay are falling as a result of rising interest rates. So the higher interest rates go, the less worth those assets have. So that's one big major for them. And then two, a lot of insurance companies generally are kind of indebted structures. It's part of the kind of leverage model that they implement. And what you're seeing then then is that they're, interest rates cost the payments that they have to make every month to service that debt is also gone up so it's a double whammy for them in terms of interest rates it's generally bad news and then on top of that if that wasn't enough bad news already for insurance companies what we've seen over the last number of years is you know during the pandemic there was this kind of lull in insurance claims you know people weren't going out business activity was lower so they you know they were still getting those insurance premiums from everyone and businesses etc but they were having to pay out a lot less money as a result of there being less claims and what's changed now is, you know, business activity is back to normal or exceeded what we saw before the pandemic. So now you're seeing this huge influx of claims again, which insurance companies, you know, haven't been used to being paying out. So now they have to deal with this. And on top of that, our old friend inflation, which we talked about at the beginning of the, the podcast, is kind of still very, very high. And what that means is that in order to pay out those claims, they're having to pay, you know, 108% of what they did a couple of years ago or 108% of what they had to do last year so that the actual cost of paying out claims is increasing too. So you've got these four huge headwinds hitting, hitting insurance companies all at the same time, which is making life very difficult for them. So I think the upshot of our story is not that, you know, the insurance industry is going to fall or that there's going to be contagion, but they could certainly see some problems there. And what we're kind of advocating then as a result is that investors should be paying real specific focus on insurance companies with strong balance sheets that are going to be able to survive this turbulent period and be avoiding those insurance companies that are you know, massively highly indebted and don't really have the balance sheets to see them through. So despite the fact that they might look cheap at the moment, some of those stocks are cheap for a reason. So staying within financials michael let's just look at the banks now if if we may and what 
Q3 holds for them? Because, of course, you, you mentioned at the beginning that there's been a, a shift in investor perception of where interest rates are, are going. And, you know, particularly if you look at UK banks, for example, and the forecasts that they gave for their net interest margins based on where they saw interest rates going for the rest of this year. At the beginning of the year, they, they kept them fairly flat. And, and, and some of them actually said that they saw net interest margins for this year being lower than last year. But in fact, we, we're seeing interest rates increase and, and set to increase further. And, and maybe those predictions of rates falling towards the end of the year to bring this, this margin down will not transpire. So is that acting as a, as a tailwind for, for, the, for the UK banks, European banks, or are we now moving into a situation that the focus is, is potentially shifting into the underlying health of the credit uh, that they hold and the assets that they hold and, and potential bad debts as the economic picture starts to look a little bit gloomier than, than it might have done previously? So I think on the, you know, the banks themselves and interest rates, I think it's very much a double-edged sword. So as, you know, interest rates, as you, as you correctly said, might, you know, might stay high for longer, that is going to positively affect the net interest margin. So these banks have been starred for quite a number of years, that the net interest margin has been massively low, which always makes like difficult, life difficult for banks that have these you know, relatively high fixed costs. They have to cover staff, branches, um, maintenance of online websites, et cetera, et cetera. So they've been doing that kind of on a shoestring budget with such a low net interest margin for the last couple of years. And I think they've been conservative as well in their estimates of what the net interest margin might be for the rest of the year. You know, at the beginning of the year, we didn't know how long how long inflation was going to be high for and how long interest rates would have to be high to combat it. Whereas now it seems pretty certain that interest rates are going to have to be a bit higher than people had first expected, which is good for these banks. And, you know, you might see them reporting uh, or forecasting slightly higher net interest margins as the year progresses, which is generally um, a bit of a tailwind, as you might have said. The, the, the negative on that, as you kind of alluded to, too, is that ultimately higher interest rates, higher mortgage rates, cash-strapped consumers, you know, businesses pulling back on spending, things like that, is generally not good for banks. It's not good for the economy. It means less lending as a result. Um, so that's generally not good news, and that could cause problems for banks as well. And then when it comes to credit quality, look, I don't think for any second that we're in a situation like we were in 2008 you know, we didn't get into this kind of mortgage-backed security business um, where we were lending to everyone and anyone and, you know, we're about to find out who's who's swimming without a swimming costume. I don't think that's going to be the case. But at the same time, you know, there are some there are some issues there, right? Corporate lending, if you, if you look into that book, I think you're going to see corporates, particularly in the smaller end of the scale, um, struggle as their interest payments go up over the course of the year. You might see more company insolvencies. If you look at insolvency rates, for instance, it's ticking up across the UK. So that could be an issue for companies, certainly. And I think, look, you know, one of the focuses as well was on consumer debt and unemployment, and unemployment is still really low in the UK. So that's not a huge issue yet. But at the same time, mortgage default rates. Um, we could see them tick up as well over the course of the year as these mortgage interest rates hit kind of 15-year highs, et cetera. So I don't think we should be worried like we were in 2008 or anything like that. 
But at the same time, you have to be vigilant and you have to be looking at these banks and the credit quality of their loan books and how their balance sheets stand and whether they're going to be able to kind of withstand any kind of storm we might see over the next six months or a year. Thank you very much. So for the last point, Michael, we're going to take a a step back. We're going to be looking at pretty much the the broader picture here and making a comparison between US stocks and and the eurozone and you know looking at what's happening and what's happened in US equities so far this year the returns have been very much concentrated on on eight or nine tech stocks names like um, Nvidia Meta done very very well very much pushing up the the broader indices there but we're seeing US apart from those particular companies lagging to some extent. But when we take a a look then at at Europe, Michael, you've pointed out that there's attractive valuations in Europe. I mean, which, which side in this disconnect do you feel over the next quarter has the biggest potential to snap back in line with, with, with the others? Is it the Eurozone and the rest of the, the, the US outside of those eight tech stocks snaps back up in line with these uh, tech giants, which are really leading the way higher? Or, or do you think they're starting to look a little bit hot, a little bit frothy at the top, and, and maybe they ease off down to, uh, to, to the broader valuations that we're seeing in underlying indices? So it's, it's a very good point. Um, if you look at how the fangs have performed, it would make you wish you had invested in all of them over the last number of months. Um, you know, they've been huge, huge performers and they've dragged up the whole of the US index as a result of that. Actually, interestingly, currently, if we look at our valuation for Europe and North America, based on our kind of bottom up analysis, we actually see Europe as closer to being fairly valued at the moment. So it's essentially more expensive than the US, which is a situation we have not seen in quite a while. And that comes back to your point about the whole of the European market essentially kind of rose to some degree, whereas in the US it was it was very much dragged up by that kind of uh, growth, um, large cap stocks, the, the fangs essentially. And what that has created is kind of an opportunity there that if I look, for example, at like value stocks, for instance, or small cap stocks, those there's way more opportunities in the US even than there is in Europe. The valuations are even lower. So it's hard to predict the direction of kind of two markets in tandem with each other, but likely you'll probably see a more of a correction in the US market. You'll probably see if indeed the economy improves, which it seems to be improving so far in the US, you've got, you know, GDP ticking up slightly. Our forecasts are for a pretty decent GDP improvement next year. And then again, the year after, and for inflation to fall pretty quickly toward the end of this year in the US. Um, and kind of normalize more next year. So if we see the economy stabilizing in the US as a result of that, you should probably see a more of an evening out, right? You should probably see the small cap, the value stuff that's been out of favor, tick up slightly and approach its fair value a bit more. Um, And potentially the growth stuff, the fangs, uh, kind of revert more to to more normal levels and not be carrying the entire weight of that index on on their shoulders. But certainly the European equity market is is a lot more balanced at the moment in terms of valuations across the space, in terms of, you know, small to large cap stocks. There's There's not the same huge discrepancy there is in the US. That's great. Michael, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Jonathan. And 
I think we'll be penciling in another podcast uh, to, to speak about Q4. Uh, but in the meantime, for, for listeners that want to get a little bit more information about the Q3 outlook, if you check out the notes to this podcast, there'll be a link through to the report. You'll be able to have a look at all the statistics that Michael's outlined there, as well as some more details on the top picks. Of course, in this podcast, we haven't touched on on every single top pick. There, there, there are some more in there. So do download that and, and check that out. So, Michael, thank you once more for being with us today. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast. And we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember, all investment involves risk.